Welcome to the Apologies Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay Whistle-Fenton. I created this podcast to promote healing and repair. Each episode, I invite my guests to share an apology that they've been carrying. The only rule is that it has to be for a person they are no longer in contact with. My dream is that at least some of these apologies might actually reach their intended recipients. I also hope this podcast reinforces the idea that as different as we may seem, we're all just people and we all carry stuff. So with each guest, we'll first spend some time just learning who and how they are before hearing their apology. Today, we'll be talking with Caleb Abrams. He's a filmmaker and multimedia artist whose work pushes back against settler colonial narratives while creating space for indigenous stories of truth, community, and connectedness. In 2021, Caleb served as a consultant on the Showtime special event series, Dexter, New Blood. His forthcoming short film, The Burning of My Cold Spring Home, is scheduled for completion fall of 2023. Caleb, welcome to the Apologies podcast. Thanks for having me. To get started, where did you grow up? I grew up on the Seneca Nation's Allegheny Territory, which is about an hour and a half south of Buffalo, right along the New York-Pennsylvania border. It follows the Allegheny River. But something that was sort of unique about where and how I grew up was, while I grew up on the Allegheny Territory, I also grew up in the city of Salamanca, which leases land uh, from the Seneca Nation. It's the only such arrangement in the country. So while I grew up on the reservation and going to a school, you know, on on our territory, probably 60, 70% of the kids that I went to school with were white and about 30 to 40% were Seneca. Is that, I'm just curious, is that arrangement still in place? Because I remember when the lease renewal was coming up, however long ago, that was a big deal. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So the original lease that Salamanca struck with the Seneca Nation was for 99 years. And they were paying like cents on the acre. So when that lease came due around the turn of a century, the Seneca Nation held very firm negotiations about striking a fairer deal for that land. Because I think at the time when the original one was made, the original agreement lease, there was this expectation that the Seneca Nation would no longer exist in 100 years or that we would have assimilated in, and this would be a non-issue when it came due. So that was a very uh, contentious uh, period of time. I don't remember it. I was like one or something. (laughs) I remember kind of reading about it shortly after, because I mean, I grew up nearby. And uh, actually, fun fact, my my first car died in Salamanca. I coasted right into an, <laughs> into an empty gas station. Did you hit a pothole? No, I did not hit a pothole. <laughs> I still remember it was closed at the time, but I, uh, yeah, the brakes went and I was able like just to get in there and put my parking brake on and then waited there for, you know, an hour and a half for my dad to come get me. But um, good times. Uh, okay, so you grew up uh, Seneca Nation. And yeah, before we get into the role that that has played in shaping your work as a filmmaker, I want to go even earlier into what role art has played in your life. Yeah, so I, from a very young age, I always liked to draw. And that was kind of like going to I t- my high school, my graduating class in high school was like 60, 70 people, very small. So coming up through elementary school, the middle school, 
I, at the start of every year, there would always come this point in the class where in the, in the school year, rather, where there'd be an opportunity to draw or we'd have art class. And I remember the kids would always be like, oh, Caleb can draw really well. Really, like it really became like this identifier for me very early on because the school system was so small. So people would learn about it and, and I like to do it. And, you know, you, you do it a lot, you get better. So I think from a very early age, I was comfortable embracing the idea that I was an artist because I saw so much affirmation and support from my peers, my classmates, my parents, of course, my family. And I enjoyed it. I don't know that I really had a sense of what, what an artist you know, is or does as an adult, but I knew as, as, a, as a young person that it was something that I enjoyed doing. And when I got into high school, it became something that was a little more refined. And I still didn't know exactly what I was going to do with it, but it's always been something that's been uh, very important to me and something that I've always enjoyed very much. And that's actually what I went to school for originally, you know, painting, drawing, sculpture. And, you know, I, I found a different medium, you know, some digital works once I got to school. But before that, it was, it was, it was a lot of drawing pages and pages and pages, so many notebooks. Do you still draw? I do mostly, mostly with our kids, you know, at the, at the dinner table before bedtime, we like to doodle, but it's definitely something that I'd like to get back to and make more time for. But for now, I do enjoy it as just a fun, sweet activity with the kids. So you mentioned how you began your studies as a fine arts major and liked painting and drawing. How did you then come to pivot and end up in film and multimedia? Yeah. So I took a um, digital video editing course, an intro course at Jamestown Community College, where I first went to school. And because I'd had some exposure to Adobe software in high school, we had this great media arts program. The school had all these renovations done while I was there. So we had this state-of-the-art studio, a green screen, a big desk that was donated to us by one of the Buffalo stations. We'd do like the morning announcements and stuff. And so when I took that intro course, I was coming in with a lot of working knowledge. And I ended up really enjoying the class and I produced a student film that semester. It was 2010 that ended up uh, really being a springboard for me as a, as a filmmaker. Because at the time, I really just wanted to make this sort of educational kind of statement piece that I just ran away with. And it was about the construction of the Kinzua Dam and its impact on the Seneca people. Hundreds of our people were forced to relocate in the 60s to make way for this dam project along the Allegheny River. But it really, like I said, it, it, I, I really did not make it with any ambitions as a filmmaker or even any thought about where it might go. But it, I submitted it to the the JCC uh, art show, student art show. It screened at a film festival at the school. And through those two opportunities, it, you know, I was asked to show it at like an environmental advocacy workshop group or, or some other showcase at Chautauqua Institute. And it just sort of snowballed from there. And I got more and more comfortable talking about the work, speaking in front of people, and I would be introduced as a filmmaker. And I, at the time, I was thinking, like, well, I just made a movie. I don't know if I'm a filmmaker. But it was, it was through that whole process that I got more and more comfortable and could really, of course, I recognized it as an art form. 
but at the time I think I still thought I was, oh no, no, I'm working in, in the fine arts. You know, I, I need to be able to hold it in my hand. But that, that was, I can really trace all of it back to that project, to that class. Uh, Deborah Lanny was my professor. She made a lot of space for that for me. That's very cool. I read that when you were a student, it really bothered you how many, uh, if any of your classmates even realized that the Seneca territory was 15 minutes from the campus where you were and that that kind of informed your work and some of your projects. What other knowledge gaps did you find in your student population? Yeah, gosh, I think there are more times than I can count or even remember from my time at JCC, which was particularly frustrating because, like you said, we were 15 minutes away from the territory line. And, um, you know, we I, we were reading some piece by Sherman Alexie in one of my writing courses. I don't even remember what it was, but he talked about the conditions in that nation's community in the story. I was sitting kind of in the back of the classroom and students several rows in front of me started making comments about what life was like in Salamanca. It really derogatory language and, and just absolutely ignorant sort of stuff coming out of the mouths. And I was uh, 19, 18, and I, I was a shy kid and I really did not know how to speak up or either. We were waiting for the professor to get the projector set up or something. I didn't know how to shout over rows of people and say, hey, you're wrong and that's racist and, you know, that's not appropriate. Um, so I definitely felt like that project of mine was a culmination of experiences that I was having for the very first time because growing up in Salamanca, I was on, I grew up on territory. So whether or not these people were, were native or Seneca, they grew up with a familiarity of native people that we exist. <laughs> and even if they weren't even necessarily uh, well-educated or respectful, they were aware. And I think there at least was a an awareness to not say these things in front of people because it is such a blended community. And you don't know who, if you're talking about somebody's mom or their boyfriend or that's part of their family. And I just felt completely ill-equipped to speak back to those situations. And, and that project was definitely my way of channeling some of those frustrations and, and those feelings. I, I would feel so bad about myself for not speaking up. Why did you let them say that? Why, why didn't you speak up? And it wasn't, you know, I would tell my younger self now that it, of course it's not your fault and you didn't fail by not saying something, but it was a learning process for me to get to where I am today to feel more comfortable saying something in those moments and when I have a platform. Yeah, no, that sounds really hard. And I think, yeah, to give, it sounds like you've already given your younger self that grace, but those situations can be just so difficult and uncomfortable. And I like that you said you found film as a way to sort of speak up and to assert yourself and I feel like that first project, like you said, really set the trajectory for a lot of what you've done since. How did that end up with you working on Lake of Betrayal, which is a PBS documentary made by WNED? In it wasn't actually made by WNED, but, oh, okay. but they did broadcast it. It was, this is, a, that's a good way to turn into this. 
It was directed by Paul Lamont and produced by Scott Sackett. Paul is a veteran producer of WNED. He was there for, I think, 10 years as a senior producer. And during his time there, he founded Towered Castle Films. And Scott is a radio host and producer, or was a radio host and producer at the station at the time. And so Paul and Scott ended up collaborating on a number of films. And Lake of Betrayal was, let's see, it was produced by Towered Castle Films and Scott's production company, Skipping Stone Pictures, with support by Vision Maker Media, which is an arm of the uh, Corporation for Public Broadcasting. They invest in Native stories. But to your question, I was contacted by Paul and Scott in February of 2013. So this is some years after I produced that student film, Remembering the Removal. And Paul and Scott were in the very early, early stages of research and like Google, like that, that's where they were at in research and development. And they had came across my name in their very early stages of research and development. And they contacted me because they recognized from the very beginning that they would need people from that community on their team to help get this right. From the beginning, they came at it with this approach that they were going to tell the story from the inside out, amplifying the voices of the people who knew the story, who lived the story. So we had a meeting, we had several meetings, and then we kind of tell this joke where, you know, they thought they were going into it to interview me to see if I would be a good fit for the project. But, you know, I really was interviewing them for months to see if this was something I wanted to be anywhere near, if I wanted to be a part of it, or if I even thought, you know, I might need to reach out to Seneca leadership and shut it down, you know, stop it before they could get in. If they, if I really felt they weren't coming to it the right way, if they were the wrong people for the job, because I always reckon this is huge. It's a, it's going to go out across PBS stations across the country. I didn't want to be a part of something or allow something that had the potential to negatively shape people's perception of the story on a national level. But Paul and Scott really were exactly the right guys for this. And I will be forever grateful for the forces that brought us together and and helped make that film possible because I'm very proud of it. I ended up coming on as a researcher and was promoted to associate producer during our time together. And I'm just so proud of the film. I'm so proud of what it is, the space that it occupies, it's something that's accessible to national audiences who know nothing of the story and to the people of our community, my family, my elders who live through it. And I, I believe have embraced the film and, and see it as something that was very well done, done respectfully, and that captures the essence of that story. And I think puts it into context too, not only for a national audience, but for a lot of our people as well. Understanding some of those political forces that were at play and and how this was possible. In a way, it's a tool for us as well to understand all of these forces that were at work. It's something to consider looking forward always too. And you kind of touched a little bit on what happened, but just for folks who aren't familiar with the story of the Kinswood Dam, what happened? The Kinswood Dam was constructed along the Allegheny River in the 1960s. It forced the relocation of over 600 Seneca people and the condemnation of over 10,000 acres of the Allegheny Territory, which of course was protected by the Canandaigua Treaty of 1794. And it outlined that, that these lands would in perpetuity 
belong to the Seneca Nation. And that only if we chose to sell those lands of our own volition would they ever be accessible to the United States. Uh, and of course, we didn't choose to sell them. This was something that was forced upon us. The project was led by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. It was constructed near Warren, Pennsylvania. And it did also destroy half a dozen other non-Native communities as well that were in the reservoir's path. And it was something that the Seneca Nation fought for many decades, actually dating back to the early 1900s. But at different points in time, you know, there were different political forces at play that either stalled out or eventually pushed this project through. And so the film examines a lot of that history. You know, it's grounded in a Seneca perspective, absolutely, but it does a lot to position the story within understandable or recognizable historical touchstones for a national audience. So, you know, we, we mentioned the Great Depression, uh, the New Deal, World War II. These are all things that were going on that helped make this possible. And getting into the politics, too, of, of, of Pennsylvania and even uh, JFK's run for president. Uh, during his campaign, he said that he would support the Senecas, but when he got into office, uh, he did not. And these all play a part of that story. And, and, and we look at, too, briefly towards the end, the impacts in a way, by recognizing that it wasn't something that happened in a contained year or two, and then it was behind us. But, I mean, our communities to this day are shaped by what happened with Kinzua, physically, but also spiritually communally, culturally. And I think that's part of why I have such a, I, I feel that the more I learn about it, the more it has become my responsibility to thoughtfully be a steward of this history and, and share it with people. Because it's almost like the more you know, the more of a responsibility you have to share. And I, I definitely feel that with, with Kinzuo. I mean, is it fair to say now you have fully embraced that you're a filmmaker <laughs> <laughs> since then? And, and it was a very successful project and, and beautiful film. And, and I like that steward of history because, I mean, honestly, I grew up in that region and I saw the film when it aired on WPSU where I work. And I, you know, and I'm kind of ashamed to admit I had no idea of that story. And I think that gets at the power of media one, to educate, but two, like you said, do it responsibly and with the right voices centered. And I know you talked about doing your interview or evaluation of Paul and Scott and it panned out and it became a great experience. But, you know, that's not always the case. We don't always see great, responsible, ethical storytelling in the media, especially when it comes to communities with marginalized identities or, or people who have been historically wronged. So when it comes to evaluating projects that you'll take on or people that you're willing to work with, what kind of goes into that process for you? What are your red flags that you're looking for? What are the things that kind of make it a go in your mind? That's a lot of what I do, actually, because I have said no to a lot of things. I have turned down a lot of opportunities. Things that on paper may have sounded exciting. But let's see. I mean, I guess, I, you know, I want to hear why these people, why they want to tell the story that they're telling. And I guess specifically what we're talking about here is stories that feature the Seneca Nation, the Seneca people, Native people, Native stories, 
Native story elements. I mean, you know, I never, I never set out to be a uh, representative outright of the Seneca Nation or a representative for Native people. But in practice, that is what happens. And I, I am standing in in this place and have the ability to shape or affect what goes out. And so I want to hear why people want to tell these stories. And that, that tells me a lot right there, how they respond to that question. But it's also in how they respond to what I share with them as I press them, as I, as I question them, as I caution them about, you know, have you considered, you know, I'll tell you right now, somebody from our community might ask, you know, why, why is this non-Native person ta- tackling this story? Or why do they feel entitled to our culture, the knowledge of our people, to our community members? And when it's a, it's a great question, and it's a question that people need an answer to. And so I don't know that I've really been asked this so directly. I love it, though. It's a great question. And frankly, a lot of it has to do with some of their past output, too. I, I'd like to see examples of past work and what brought them to the story. Yeah, I feel like I should have more to say. There is, I mean, it's, a lot of it is reacting to the person and what they're bringing to the table. You know, I'm just intensely protective, especially in those moments where I have the ability to either bring somebody in or, or keep them out, stop a project or, or, or support it in a big way. So much of what people know or, or think they know about Indigenous people comes from television, comes from the movies. And so there's an opportunity to re-educate or, or educate those who have not been misinformed, right? There's, there's younger generations of people coming up that have, we have an opportunity to, to present them with more accurate, more factual, more honest, more human, you know, examples of, of indigenous representation and stories. But I think it's just, you know, people, non-native people, I mean, I specifically here in, in, in the U.S. and Canada, I think have a certain amount of ignorance that they've carried their whole lives because it, it goes unchallenged. Why would they know different? Because the school systems intentionally don't teach these concepts, this history. And there's really no point at which in in their lives, unless they sort of seek it out or in proximity to people that they would ever have this challenge. And so when presented with it, I think a lot of times people get defensive or double down or they're dismissive because they don't know and they're not open to it. But it's, it's very important. And I think a medium like ours needs to be utilized to reach people. And again, I think that's part of why I'm so drawn to it is because it is so, you can do so much. You can do so much. Well, and as your work has evolved, you ended up working on a show that reached a lot of people. You worked as a consultant on Showtime's crime drama series, uh, Dexter New Blood. How did that come about and what was your role in that project? Yeah, that, that was also uh, Google. <laughs> they, uh, the, the producers were looking for a consultant. They reached out to me. It was November of 2020. And I got an email from one of the executive producers who said they came across my name online doing some research for the, for the show. They had the scripts more or less complete at that time. And they knew that they had set the story in the Northeast, the Northeast United States. And that the story was going to feature 
an indigenous community. More specifically, it was going to be in Western New York region. And they settled on the Seneca Nation in their draft of the script. And so that was how they found me. But again, you know, I, of course, <laughs> I wanted to, this sounded like a great opportunity. To be honest, I'd only seen maybe like a dozen episodes of the original series, but it enjo I enjoyed it. And it was on my list of like shows I'd like to come back to. You know, I heard a lot of good things about it. But yeah, I, I you know, I, I took I took some time to to read everybody's uh, past professional output and, and talk with those people that were reaching out to me. And I came on as a consultant, so I got to review all of the scripts. I, of course, had to sign you know an NDA, so I didn't leak any of this. And I'd offer notes on the script. Um, I got to help source um, a lot of the props and and set design pieces. Some of the the wardrobe or clothing. I got to, I, one of my favorite parts about the, the whole process was I got to contact people from our community and ask them to make things for the show or different jewelry pieces or, or clothing that people wore was sourced and, and made by community members to be in the show. So that was really exciting. Even some of the music. There's a scene, I think, in episode eight that has one of our singers from the Tanawanda community in the show. But I really, I really, I really felt heard and respected on that production in a way that I did not expect to for something as, as massive as a Showtime show is. They really wanted to get it right. And they were really receptive to my ideas. You know, I going into it, I, I had the expectation that I would be there in, in some ways as a stamp of approval in a way. I just figured the machine would be too big to really take in creative suggestions because sometimes there'd be a scene that would, we would need to do some, uh, some massaging. It wasn't quite all the way wrong, but there were a lot of things that were making me uncomfortable. And so the, the, the equation there was like, we have to get from A to B. That's what this scene is doing. And we need to maintain a certain amount of drama in this scene. And then, you have to hit these two beats within the scene. That was sort of a challenge. How do, how do we then make this something that, that you know, I'm comfortable with and, and the writers and the producers are, are happy with as well? And like I said, I was really very happily surprised how open they were to collaborating on that process. You know, I felt very hurt. And I was on set for a handful of dates. There was a couple of different times I went out. We were shooting in Massachusetts. And then I got a, I got to go to the premiere in New York. My dad and I, my dad went with me. He was my plus one. And it was amazing. I still, to this day, can't really believe that it, that it happened. And of course, it was during the, the, the peak of the pandemic, no less. So it was a really just wild <laughs> time. But to your, to your earlier comment, yeah, it was, talk about, you know, reach. That was, that was millions and millions of people that were watching the return of that show. And that, that, that weighed heavily on me, but it was something that I was also very grateful for because it's something that I'm proud of too. I just, I just have to say, I really respect the thought you put into the seriousness of this work. I mean, it, that opportunity, I mean, anybody gets an opportunity to work on a project like that, you know, it seems like, Oh, well, jump on it of course but i mean i i can tell talking to you you 100% would walk away from it 
if you did not feel comfortable. And that that's hard to do. That's really hard to do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think the only thing, um, you know, the only thing harder, I think, than walking away from it would have been being a part of it and having it be something that I was not proud of, something that was not not a good look for the Seneca Nation or the broad representation of Native people. That's just, I don't want to be a part of that. And I, it's, it's, uh, it's also though too, I think, you know, part of, I take it so seriously because I, I see, I see how it matters and why it's important. And I, I just, um, yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah. It was, it's, it's, it's a, it's a big calculation every time, you know, is this going to be something I, I want to be a part of? One of the responsibilities I know you had as a consultant on Dexter was as language consultant. And so were you taught Seneca in school or in your home, or was that something you had to consciously seek out? We, when I was in elementary school, we would have like Seneca culture class twice every six day cycle. So on like on the third day and the sixth day, we'd go to a Seneca culture class. And when I was a kid, it was like, a, whatever, one of those days, everyone would go. On the other day, just the Seneca kids would go. The thinking there, I think, was that all of these kids are going to school on Seneca territory. They should have a working understanding of the clan system. And just what some of like the symbols or, or the, the iconography or basic Seneca words, you know, like uh, Yahweh is thank you. Or Yahweh Scano is hello, translates to a kind of gratefulness that the person is well, or a gratefulness to be greeting the goodness in someone. And, you know, we would learn colors and animals and numbers and a lot of basic vocabulary like that. But I, you know, to this day, you know, I'm not, I'm not a speaker. In fact, I speak more Mohawk than I do Seneca because my partner is a, is a speaker. We, we both went through uh, an immersion program up at the uh, Six Nations Reserve in Ontario. She's, I mean, miles and miles ahead of me. She's fantastic. I mean, I don't really know that much Mohawk either, but I know a lot more Mohawk than I do Seneca. And our kids, are, you know, our kids speak it. They all have Mohawk names and our uh, almost three-year-old knows just as much Mohawk as he does English, as he does sign language. And it's really pretty amazing. But my grandmother, is actually one of the last first language speakers that we have in our communities. You know, we have a we have a growing population of second language speakers, people who grew up speaking English who are now learning Seneca through immersion programs. And, and there's a great school in Allegheny, that immersion school for, for young kids uh, and language classes that they offer at the high school level you can take instead of French or Spanish and meet your requirements with that. So it's wonderful to see like what those schools are able to do. But, you know, I think of people who, who go through this immersion program. Once you go far enough down this road, you become a carrier of the language. And I think that there's a responsibility to then, you know, it's not a party trick that you use. You know, look at all these words I know now. You, you have a responsibility to pass this on and to keep it alive. And I see that. I see people who go through it, carry that with them. But, but kind of <laughs> getting back to the, the, the Dexter of it, what, what I did for my role as far as language goes in the show, was I leaned on speakers in my community. You know, again, I only, I, I know what I know, but I knew who to turn to when I didn't know. And that was actually how I got one of my my elders, one of my teachers on the show, uh, Steve Gordon, 
appears in episode three and he speaks. He's speaking Seneca on Showtime. That was one of my other like proudest accomplishments with the show. And in a way that he's happy with, he's proud of, the show was happy with, I'm happy with. Because it was kind of delicate in a way too about what can he say on TV? What is appropriate? What's inappropriate? So Steve was really a, a, a very uh, important resource for me uh, on that front. But I always like to make sure I get a couple people's input so that I know I'm not going in with one person's opinion, that I have kind of a, a group behind me. You're working on a new film. What is the burning of my cold spring home about? Yeah, so that that's a, a short film that's based on a short story that was written by uh, Steve Gordon, the guy that I uh, worked with on Dexter that I brought in. He's been a friend of mine, a teacher of mine for about uh, over 10 years now. He wrote this story, I think he wrote a first draft like around the turn of the century, finished it in 2005, and then sort of sat on it. And it, it, it tells the story of the night that his father brought the family out. At this point, they'd been relocated to one of the two Seneca relocation communities. They were in Steamburg. And he drove them back down to Cold Spring, which was one of the Seneca communities that was going to be destroyed by the reservoir. But their house was still standing. And Steve's father set fire to their home in the middle of the night. And Steve and his brother and his mom uh, watched as this happened. And the story from there is Steve, you know, now as an adult, as an elder, reflecting on basically the past so many decades that he's carried this grief and this trauma, how his parents carried it, how he and his brother navigated the, the, the years following it. And it's a really kind of interesting story to me because it's not, you know, there's not a happy ending to it. The house is gone and, and everyone had to move. The cemeteries had to be dug up. The longhouse was burned to the ground. You can't go back to these communities, but you can revisit some of the, so everything below the elevation of 1365 was claimed as part of the take area for the reservoir, but not everything's underwater. In fact, a lot of those communities aren't underwater, but they are, they were condemned and everything was removed and, and the houses were all leveled and burned. So in, in the film adaptation that we've been working on, we see Steve return back to that old homestead, but it's much harder to get to now because the, um, the interstate cuts through part of it. Uh, and of course the reservoir is there as well. And it is, it's a pretty, it, it's been a real labor of love. As I said, uh, I've known Steve for a little over 10 years and that's how long we've been working on this. You know, I approached him when I was still a student at Jamestown Community College and I've been working on it uh, since. You know, I worked on it when I was at Syracuse, you know, out of college working for the nation and, and, and even now, you know, and I'm, I'm eyeing a, a, uh, a release this fall and then a festival run for it. But it's um, the way, the way I've been thinking about it, the way that I've approached it in a way is it's a sort of unofficial companion piece to Lake of Betrayal in a way. What I mean by that is that Lake of Betrayal is able to offer this big picture, you know, over the course of, you know, a century of what happened to make this possible. Whereas the burning of my cold spring home is far more intimate. You know, we, I, I pay, I take very little time to explain what was going on politically outside of this community, outside of this family. And we stay with Steve. This is Steve's story. 
of relocation and, and trauma and and family and, and their healing process and what home means to him and, and to people, I think. And I, I'm very proud of how it's coming along. And it's something that I feel will be a true representation of the kind of work that I want to produce as an individual. Because as we've talked about, so much of my output has been in supporting roles. You know, I produce pr- plenty of smaller you know, independent pieces, but this is my first offering that's um, of a certain length that I've been at the helm at. I, I watched the trailer and it's, it's, I'm excited. It's very moving and I, I look forward to seeing it. So you mentioned that you took your dad to, as your plus one to Dexter. Have you talked with your family about the work that you do and the potential for impact that it has? I mean, absolutely. I, I think my my parents, my siblings, my partner, my, my kids, these are really my first and in many ways, like my primary audience. You know, I, I, I really, I look to them for, for feedback and direction and, and my parents in particular, because they've lived some of the history that I have produced work on and they've lived in the community that I'm, you know, always representing. And I think that they, they've always been so supportive. They've, they've been my biggest supporters uh, my whole life. And then they have made so many things possible through their support. Not the least of which is just, you know, instilling a belief in me that this is even a, a path that a person can take. They never hesitated when I said I was going to be an art major. And then when I said, I'm going to be a filmmaker. No, and they said, great, do it, go. And yeah, I, I think that I, I think that they they see the value in it. I think that they're 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 proud of the work and, and that they they can they really believe in, in the path that I'm on and what's possible in the future. It's 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 a really wonderful support group I have around me. So this has been great and we are now at apology time. So Caleb, what apology would you like to share? Yeah. Well, I, I thought about this a lot, actually. And I had a couple different um, people that I considered, but I think I would like to apologize to a professor that I had in college. I was having a particularly tough semester one year, personally, academically, and, and my grades were really suffering as a result. Uh, so much so that I was in danger of losing the scholarship that I have. And this professor, you know, kind of threw me a life raft here, lifeline. He told me that if I could get in all the back work that I owed him and get this paper done before some extended deadline uh, at the end of the semester, that he would uh, he'd give me the, the passing grade that I needed. And so I set to work and I got all the, uh, the back work that I owed him in. And I started on an outline for the paper. I sent that into him, but I didn't get, I didn't get the paper done. The deadline came and went, the semester ended. When I checked my grades, I, I was all square. I was set. And he held up his end of the, our agreement, but, but I didn't. And it wasn't exactly a conscious choice. In fact, it, it wasn't. I just, I was having a time and I, I let it get away from me. 
But I, I always told myself that I would come back to it. I'll, I'll have it to him before the next semester starts or I'll do it next week, next month. And it just, I never got to it because it was never the most pressing thing. There was always something that I felt like was a, a paper that was due that semester or whatever, right? But so I wanted to apologize to him for, for not holding up my end of that agreement when it was it was such an an important thing that he did for me, something that I'm so grateful for today. And, you know, it, I, I could have, uh, it could have been a very different trajectory for me for a period of time. Had I not locked into, you know, his, he did, he had that belief in me, that trust in me. But I do want to say that I always kept the prompt for that paper because I, I said that I was going to write it. And, and since you reached out to me and I settled on him, I have started writing that paper and I still do have a good email for him. So I, I am going to send it to him and, uh, uh, make good on that just a couple of years later. <laughs> oh my God. I love that so much. No, that gave me goosebumps. So yeah, just thank you for being here and sharing yourself, your work and your apology with us. Yeah. My pleasure. Yeah. That was Caleb Abrams a filmmaker and multimedia artist. To learn more about Caleb and to hear additional episodes from this podcast, visit apologies-podcast.com. I'm Lindsay Whistle-Fenton. Thank you for being here for this episode of the Apologies Podcast. If you haven't already yet, be sure to subscribe to this podcast. And then if you want to go an extra mile, it would be so helpful if you would rate and review this series on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts because of the algorithms and all the things it helps other people find the podcast, which gives us a bigger pool of connections to make as we embark on this journey of healing. The Apologies podcast is a production of Empathic Media, LLC. It's hosted, produced, and edited by me, Lindsay Whistle-Fenton, with music by Taizo Audio. If you have an apology you'd like to share, and you'd like to be considered to be a guest on the Apologies podcast, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach out by going to apologies-podcast.com contact.